Uh, praise the Lord. He is still working and he's doing great things. I challenge each of you to be a part of that work, by the way. Uh, so as exciting as it is to hear of young people that are sharing with other people in their schools and children in our children's ministry, giving their hearts to Christ, there is a world of people from all age ranges that need to know Jesus. And I believe God's called us to be a part of reaching them. So, by the way, uh, Easter Sunday, we'll be doing baptisms as a part of that as well, because we believe God's going to allow us to lead some people to Christ between now and then. So just, you can put that on your calendar already. All right, now dismiss the children to Children's Church. Thank you, Miss Amy, for being so patient over there. Yeah. It's a blessing to be able to share with you this morning, to be able to open up the Word. And I will tell you, I've been uh, cautioned over the past several weeks that apparently some of my illustrations and some of the things that I say are lost on a younger generation of people. A few weeks ago, I referenced a, a soldier and his family meeting up on a football field, and I made mention of the fact that it was almost like a chariots of fire moment where you had people running from one end of the field and another group running from the other end, and they embraced there in the middle. Well, I was talking with some of our young adults, and they had no idea what I was talking about when I said a chariots of fire moment. That's a movie from years ago. And uh, anyways, it's just one of those things, as I get older, I have to be reminded. Um, I want to actually start with a reference to something that I think does cross generations this morning. I remember as a teenager, I remember every afternoon, my sister would race inside the door after school to make sure that she didn't miss her soap operas. And these soap operas, I think they still run today. I say it was my sister, but I might have watched it a few times with her too. The ones that she loved to watch was General Hospital and then when we could, Days of Our Lives. My mom used to say that it was always the same crazy story. You could turn it off for three years and come back and it's still the exact same story. Somebody sleeping with somebody else's wife. Somebody else just found out that he was the illegitimate son of a wealthy man. Blah, blah, blah. The stories just keep going on and on. I always thought that these families, that families like that didn't really exist until I started watching the Alex Murdoch trial this week. <laughs> I guess these people really do exist. Well, long before General Hospital, long before Alex Murdaugh and his family existed, David's family story was very much like a soap opera. And today we're going to continue to see the craziness from within. Someone asked me this week why I did these kings slightly out of order. They're chronologically incorrect. And it's a really good question. But as you look at the progression of the kings... We see that David was generally considered to be a very good king. Then we see that Solomon started off as a very good king, but he ended very poorly. And then today we'll see one who started off poorly and he ended poorly. So there's a progression, but it is going in the wrong direction. You'll see within each of these kings that we've looked at and the one we'll look at today a downward spiral of character and leadership. But of course, there are lessons for each of us within these kings. Today, we're going to take a look at 
one of David's other sons. His name is Absalom. Our key verses are found in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verses 13 and 14, although you cannot merely look at those two verses and know what the story of Absalom is really about. It's where the actual act of betrayal takes place in these two verses toward David. But his story actually encompasses many chapters. In fact, before we dig into this betrayal, I want you to consider what led up to it. Let's begin with an understanding of who Absalom was. We know that he is one of at least 20 children of King David through multiple wives. It is generally accepted that Absalom was the third son of David. The oldest was a man named Amnon, whom we'll talk about in just a few moments. And there was apparently another named Daniel who really we know very little about. He is the second oldest. The scriptures don't say much about him, so we assume at some point or another, maybe he died at an early age. Well, in a culture where the oldest son was typically expected to take over for dad, there's not much chance of Absalom, the third oldest, there's not much chance of Absalom becoming king down the road. Yes, his dad is a king, and yes, he would be considered a prince, but the odds are he'll never see the throne himself. That being said, regardless of the culture, there are many times in Scripture where God broke through the traditional model. For example, Jacob was the youngest brother, youngest son of Isaac, and he would receive his birthright. And when Jacob would bless his grandchildren, he would intentionally cross his arms to allow his right hand of blessing to rest upon the second born child. And even in the house of David, we see that David was the youngest son of Jesse. Remember, Samuel assumed it must be the oldest son that would be the next king, yet it would be David, the youngest son. So maybe Amnon, the oldest brother, would never truly become the next king. Actually, in Amnon's case, he himself would orchestrate his own doing. 2 Samuel 13 records an ugly encounter in the soap opera that describes King David's family. Amnon takes notice of his sisters, actually his half-sister, Tamar. Her full brother is Absalom, the third one and the one that we'll talk about mostly today. Well, Amnon decides that She's beautiful, and he must have her. And so with the help of an advisor, he concocts a plan. Listen to verses 6 through 8. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so I may eat from her hand. David sent word to Tamar at the palace, go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon who was lying down. So we begin here with Amnon and his lust for his sister. Now I know in our culture today, we look and say, ew, that's gross. But it actually is not that foreign in the culture in which we're reading about. In the verses that would follow, though, we see that Amnon will forcibly rape Tamar. 
and he will then put her off, wanting nothing to do with her. In essence, he treats her like a piece of meat. And after he gets what he wants from her, he wants to move on. But of course, she cannot just move on. She's been shamed. She's distraught. And it is her brother Absalom who will embrace her, offering her support and encouragement in this time of brokenness. The only recorded response from King David is recorded in 2 Samuel 13, verse 21, where we read that when King David heard all this, he was furious. David had good reason to be furious, by the way. On the one hand, David's daughter has just been raped by his own son. In addition, his son actually duped David into participating in this ruse. You say, well, what do you mean? Remember that Amnon pretended to be ill and then got David, the king, to arrange for Tamar to come to Amnon. I would imagine that David would be furious, but I also imagine he was quite brokenhearted over what is taking place. But the sad reality is that David never really acts on his fury. And maybe this is just because Amnon is his son, or maybe it's because David knew what it was like to be in Amnon's shoes. Please understand that what I'm supposing in no way makes Amnon's actions acceptable, nor does it make David's inaction acceptable. But consider the fact that David was the king, and he could have had anything he wanted, anyone he wanted, even as his bride. But he decided to take a married woman named Bathsheba as his bride. He knew it was wrong, but he did it anyways. Well, the apple hasn't fallen far from the tree when it comes to Amnon. Amnon is merely walking the same path that his father David had already walked. And perhaps David seems to hold off on discipline simply because he knew that he was no better than his son. What a tragedy within that family. Well, two years would pass from the time that Amnon would rape Tamar. And by this time, it appears that David has no intention of punishing Amnon. In fact, Amnon is still next in line for the throne. And so Absalom, the younger brother, the one who was closest to Tamar, filled with bitterness over what has been done to his sister, decides to take matters into his own hands. He and his servants wait for Amnon to become drunk on wine. And then at the direction of Absalom, they strike Amnon down. Now, there are a couple of possibilities here. First, it is possible that Absalom is merely displeased with the leadership of his father, David. It's possible that he anticipated David's discipline toward Amnon. Clearly, David knows what's happened, but David hasn't done anything. There's been no discipline. As such, it would certainly feed his lust to take over the kingdom in the years ahead. He may not have seen his father, David, as much of a leader. David seemed weak, and therefore Absalom felt like he could do a better job 
as king. I would just add that if that's the motivation, he may be slightly justified in his thought process. Certainly David has not led his family well. How could he lead the kingdom well? But there's another possibility of what's happening here. And I will confess, this is something that I missed the first couple times that I read through this. What if this were all just a part of Absalom's manipulative plan to clear a path to the throne? Here's why I say that. I told you earlier that Amnon had an advisor who helped to orchestrate this rape of Tamar. According to verse 3 of the passage, we learn that the advisor was a man named Jonadab, son of Shemaiah, David's brother. Two years later, listen to the report of Amnon's death as recorded in verse 32. David has been told that all of David's sons have been killed, but that wasn't really true. So listen, according to verse 32. But Jonadab, son of Shemaiah, David's brother, said, My Lord should not think that they killed all the princes. Only Amnon is dead. This has been Absalom's express intention ever since the day Amnon raped his sister Tamar. It's interesting here. We're talking about the same advisor, the same one who told Amnon, this is what you should do. This same advisor is now speaking on behalf of Absalom. He's justifying Absalom's actions based on the previous rape of Tamar. In other words, David, had you held Amnon accountable, this wouldn't have happened. And how did he know that only Amnon was dead, that the other brothers had not been killed unless he had been a part of the very same planning that Absalom was already involved with? Well, Absalom may have seen his father as weak, but he knows that Now is not a good time to hang out and talk with dad about what's taking place. If you were to continue with the story, you'll see that he flees town. He goes to a place called Geshur, where he was seemingly exiled for the next three years. It seems as if David has no intention to go out and punish him. Again, David did not punish his son Amnon. He also has no intention to go and have Absalom killed as well. Yet David still had a very soft spot in his heart for his son. In fact, he actually longed to be with Absalom. So after three years, he's brought back to, to his home in Jerusalem, although it would be a total of five years before he would see David face to face once more. And if you weren't sure about Absalom's intentions years earlier, now five years earlier, All those doubts immediately go out the window as we read the rest of the story. In fact, listen to verse 6. We're back in chapter 15, beginning in verse 6. I'm sorry, beginning in verse 1, reading through verse 6. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate, Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? 
He would answer, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative to the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me and I would see that they receive justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. I read an interesting um, article recently. It was talking specifically about individuals who will manipulate a situation for their own gain. So often what happens is individuals will uh, try to make a situation work to their benefit. Maybe you've seen it happen. Actually, as I was reading, my thought was, I have seen it many times firsthand. As I read this passage, I think of an attractive politician who never really has to make a decision. Instead, he could just complain about those who do make the decisions, in this case, his father. And even the way he speaks of his ambition seem very noble. If only I were appointed judge. This is actually a throwback to the good old days of Israel, before Israel had a king. And there were judges that would rise up and deliver the people of Israel. If only I were appointed judge. He's going back to the tradition, but he didn't want to be a deliverer for the people. Oh, sure, he sounds like he's very noble and he wants to do something good. He didn't want to deliver the people. He wanted power and control for himself. The phrase stole the hearts of the people could literally be translated as he tricked them or he duped them. In other words, he is a con man. In essence, he was great as a candidate who could say what the people wanted to hear, but he was certainly no King David. By the way, the politicians around us today, I would say on both sides of the equation, we run into a lot of Absaloms. A great way to look at it is he looked the part of a king or a leader, but he lacked the heart of a king or a leader. I'll repeat that. I think this is really important. He looked the part of a king or a leader, but he lacked the heart of a king. You can look really good. You can make it look like you got everything worked out. On the surface, he was everything that Israel wanted in a king. He was good looking with his long flowing hair. And personally, he appeared to have compassion. He appeared to get down on their very own level with his fellow Israelites, would actually embrace them and kiss them. In addition, he begins by gathering about 50 troops basically a small army, and that army would increase over time. Eventually, he will even return to a place called Hebron to announce himself as king. Not coincidentally, the very same place where David had previously been proclaimed as king. He could look the part, and he very much did. 
A side note, according to chapter 15, the 200 soldiers who would go up with Absalom to Hebron didn't even know what was about to take place. It's an interesting aspect of this. They're simply going because he's going to Hebron and they're going to escort him. What he is doing, he is sucking as many other people in to his scheme as possible. It is a sad thing. He looked the part, but he lacked the heart. He had four significant things that were missing. The measure of a king was longevity, expansion, peace, and God's anointing. Four things that ought to always be present with those who lead. We'll see in a few moments with Absalom that he certainly lacked longevity, so he's already going to miss one of them. And instead of expansion, Absalom seems to be all about dividing those within the kingdom already. People are being forced to choose sides, and if they choose the wrong side, they will likely die. This is similar to an election that took place about two decades ago in Sierra Leone. It turned out to be a relatively close vote, and the winning party wanted to make sure that it was never close again. So the new governing officials ordered the soldiers to go from town to town, identifying those who had voted for the opposition candidate. Upon finding them, they literally chopped off limbs so that they would be unable to pull the levers on the voting machines next time around. The Wesleyan Church had a program to help meet a need specifically related to this in Sierra Leone. It was referred to as Limbs of Hope, where we would go and we would provi provide prosthetic limbs for individuals who had lost their limbs as punishment. Incredibly cruel, that's correct. Well, Absalom doesn't sound like a king who genuinely cares about his people. He cares about his own power. He cares about himself. And what a contrast. As David is fleeing to avoid Absalom, we're told that David is telling some people, save yourself, don't worry about me. Actually, verses 19 and 20, he's telling an individual who is new, go ahead, get out, it's, it's okay. It's not fair that you should have to deal with this. What a contrast. Absalom seeks to divide the kingdom. But I told you there were four significant things that were missing for Absalom. One was his longevity, which clearly he lacks. Another was expansion. Well, he's dividing, not expanding. The third was peace. The battle was internal, though. So there would be no peace in Israel as long as he were in this role of king. But it is the last one that will matter most. The greatest king is not the most attractive or the most intelligent. It is not the politician who can tell you what you want to hear. But rather it is the one whom God has chosen to lead these people. The fact is that God had not chosen Absalom to lead the people of Israel. He had chosen David. Now, I'd just like to say one other thing. It is an unattractive thing, but it is true, 
And it's something that we need to be aware of today. See, we look at this story, and this is more than a soap opera that took place thousands of years ago. But this is something that we still have to deal with today. You see, there remains something that is often referred to as an Absalom spirit. It is a spirit of division that often crops up in various settings. It can happen in government. It can happen on a college campus. Or it can even happen in a church. You have individuals who look the part of a leader. You have individuals who have developed connections and influence with others. But they cannot and they will not submit to those whom God has actually placed in leadership over them. We had a guy in our church in North Carolina who had a lot of biblical knowledge. He had even served as a Sunday school teacher. His name was Henry. He never had a problem with me, so he and I, we tended to get along. However, he did have a problem with our senior pastor. In fact, he took every chance he could get to communicate that to anybody who would listen. He became a divider. I will tell you, the church was rather fortunate because not many chose to follow his lead, but that is not always the case. Well, as the soap opera continues, four years after this scheme began, Absalom would officially go up to Hebron and be anointed by a priest to serve as king. The people would stand in support of their new king, shouting, Absalom is king in Hebron. And it would seem that David's kingdom was falling apart. I just want to, we're just now getting to our text this morning. At that moment, it appeared that the kingdom was falling apart. According to our passage, I want to read it to you this morning. It says this, verses 13 and 14, a messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. What an incredible moment this must have been for David, and an incredibly humbling moment at that. When you think about what is taking place here, this is is that moment when Israel is questioning their leader. They had to question him. This is his own son, and here he is. He is taking control of the kingdom. David is afraid, and clearly there's a problem. David would flee with his family and many from within the court, which I just want to point out, this is very odd for David. What enemy had David ever run from? He stood up against Goliath and the Philistines. He stood up against countless enemy nations, but he ran from Absalom. It reveals the fact that David is still filled with compassion toward his son. I mean, think about it for a moment. Absalom had been trying to win the people over for four years before he would actually go up to Hebron. Did David really not receive any word? Absalom would go every day to sit at the gate where people would come through. Did David never get a report? Hey, do you know what Absalom's doing? 
Do you know he's trying to sway people to follow him? Did David never hear about any of that? Or did David hear it? And he simply swept it under the carpet because he loved Absalom so much. Well, Absalom's love for David was far less substantial than David's love for Absalom. He returns to David's palace to find that David is gone and to make a statement of complete separation from David. Absalom will go so far as to have sexual relations with David's concubines in front of everyone. What he's doing would be considered detestable. It would have been a slap in the face of David and of David's God. I won't go into all the details of Absalom's demise, but I will tell you that his reign over a divided kingdom is incredibly short-lived. As David sent his soldiers out to fight, he cautioned them against taking the life of Absalom. Remember, Absalom has been scheming for years to overthrow David, and now he comes with the intent to kill David, yet as David sends out his soldiers, do not lay a hand on my son Absalom. He is revealing how much he loved his son in spite of all that he had done. Yet Absalom would still die at the hands of David's soldiers. Immediately, those who had followed Absalom into battle returned to their homes filled with shame and regret, and the war was over just like that. One might think that David would rejoice over such a quick and decisive battle, but that is not the case. And I want you to understand why. The truth is that this was a no-win situation. David's army won. But David still lost because his son died. But even if Absalom had won, the kingdom would have lost because of the division that would certainly be present. And finally, either way, David's legacy would be stained. Remember that David's concubines have been defiled in front of all Israel. And it's likely that many Israelites no longer saw David through the same lens that they once did. He can't even hold his family together. He probably can't hold the kingdom together either. Can you understand how big of an impact Absalom had? So how would David move forward after this treachery? To begin with, he needed to stand up and start acting like the king again. He would need to lead by making decisions that truly put the best interest of the people first. He would once again need to show how much he valued the people. And that is exactly what David would do. Now, I want to take a moment and share a few words of application before I close out with one really important point. The first thing I'll challenge you with today is this. If you are going to lead, you must begin by checking your heart. Far too many have led out of arrogance, selfish ambition, and pride only to do more damage than good. That is a very good description of Absalom. His every intent was to draw attention to himself, to draw power to himself, to have authority over others. But it was never for the well-being of the kingdom 
Too many of us have thought we want to achieve, but it's more about our own personal recognition. It's about us getting to do the things we want to do, us being in charge and having things done our way. Let me tell you, if your heart is not right with God, then whatever you do will eventually lead to defeat anyways. So begin by checking your heart. The same divisive ways, they will follow you wherever you go. Not to mention the fact that you will hurt many other people along the way. The second part of this is found in the fact that you are likely not much better than David. You will probably be betrayed at some point, and it may even be by someone who is very close to you. I'm not going to lie, it stinks. It hurts. You will likely lose much sleep over it. When a family member betrays you, it hurts. It's a part of you that just, I think sometimes emotionally we get confused. I'm not sure if it's, if it's sorrow or anger. We lash out in anger, but sometimes that anger comes from a hurt that's deep within us because someone that we've poured into, someone that we've loved has betrayed us and it hurts. And it stinks. But in those moments of betrayal, you need to remember that it was God who called you to do what you do. So you must stay the course. You must right the ship if necessary. Sometimes when division takes place, it is because there are things that a leader has done that have not been good. David would be one of those people. Clearly, he had not led his family well. David needed to change his ways because the way he led his family was not healthy. Right the ship if necessary, but don't let the betrayal of one or a few stop you from accomplishing what God called you to accomplish. Time to get up, put your big boy pants on, and move forward. Now I have one more point for you And this is probably the most important thing that I will share today. As I've shared already, I've painted Absalom in a very ugly light. And I think it's pretty faithful to the scriptures. I don't see really anything that is said positive about him as I have prepared for this message. But maybe we're also not all that much better than Absalom either. I told you you're not better than David. Maybe we're not really all that much better than Absalom. The unfortunate reality is that like Absalom, at times we all want to be on the throne. But there's truly only one king. You see, like many of us, God has already declared, I am the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he has offered to come and to reign in our lives. But what has happened for many of us is somewhere along the way, we didn't like the way he was leading us. And we decided that we would do a better job on the throne of our lives. We've tried to take control back from God. Now all of a sudden Absalom doesn't sound like such a bad guy. Because maybe we've done the exact same things. See, the reality is when you ask Jesus to become the Lord of your life, he didn't just become your savior. You invited him to be in charge. 
You invited him to guide you, to teach you, to convict you. He dictates what should happen in our lives. But for many of us, we find ourselves repeatedly trying to take back the position of Lord over our own lives. And I'm going to tell you, you cannot have two masters. You cannot have two kings on your throne. If you, if you think that you as the king could do better than Jesus as the king, you're probably going to be disappointed. Maybe you're sitting here thinking that perhaps you've had the wrong king on your throne. If so, it is time for you to relinquish the reins and to allow him to be in charge once more. It is time to surrender everything and begin to serve your king faithfully. I will confess that there have been times where I have taken the reins of leadership when God should have been the one leading. I know that there are times that in my role I do have to lead, but someone has to lead me. And if I'm counting on my ability to make that happen, I'm in trouble. The good news is that God will lead. Will you allow him to lead in your life? If you will bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you, Lord, we recognize that there have been many times that we have been like Absalom. And we have chosen to try to take over the throne in our lives. I know we're not taking over a national throne as Absalom was with David. But instead, within our own hearts, we invited you to be the Lord of our lives, the master, the king. And somewhere along the way, we became discontented with the way you were leading us. You weren't telling us to do the things we wanted you to tell us to do. So we decided that we would do a better job of leading. And we confess today that that has not worked out. Father, today we ask that you would forgive us and we pray that you would, from this moment forward, walk as the King, the Master, the Lord in our lives. Lord, I pray today that you would help us to recognize that you do a much better job at this than we do. Father, I pray that you would help us when others betray to keep our eyes fixed on you. It's so easy for us to get focused on things that don't matter, on the wrong things. Lord, I pray that you'd fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith, so that even when things begin to fall apart, Lord, we'll be okay because we still are under your leadership and your blessing. Lord, I pray for each one who is here. Lord, you've called us to be leaders. You've called us to lead in a world that desperately needs good, godly leadership. Lord, I pray that you'd give us wisdom. I pray that you would empower us to do things we could not do on our own. I pray that you'd help us to stand strong even when there is opposition from within or from without. Lord, help us to remain faithful. Lord, we've seen kings in this series who sometimes they were faithful and sometimes they weren't. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be the ones who lead with faithfulness. And Lord, I pray that you would empower us to change this world. Thank you for the examples we've seen in your word 
even as we've gone through this series. Thank you for the good godly examples. Even thank you for the less than godly examples. I pray that you'd help us to learn from it so maybe we don't have to make the same mistakes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now I told you that this is the last sermon in this series. I think I said that at the beginning. I want you to know that beginning next week, we will be looking at the one true king. We've talked about all these kings that have fallen short. Even David, the one who was generally accepted to be a good king, even today we're talking about he really wasn't as good as he should have been. Certainly not with his family. All of the kings that we read of in the Old Testament, they are cheap imitations of the real king. And what I'm talking about is the one true God, Jesus himself. Actually, that king often told parables. And next week, we'll begin looking at some of the parables that Jesus told. And I really hope that you'll come back to be a part of that. I do think that some of... I had someone tell me uh, as we were going into this service, they said, I didn't realize that the Old Testament actually had that much to, to teach us. And I hope that you've learned a lot of the last two series that, that we've gone through. I hope you've learned a lot from the Old Testament stuff, but we're going to learn a ton from the parables of Jesus beginning next week, and I hope you'll be a part of that. Thank you for being with us today. If you can, come back tonight for our spaghetti dinner and dessert auction. Go in peace.